let's try to get started. Um, I wanted to call your attention to these so that you have them. Um, this is a map of Israel, so that um, we're, we'll be or of um, the journey that Israel took. So we'll be re we'll be um, looking at some of the things on here the next two weeks. So if you can grab one, they're, they're on the tables. And then I also included um, Annie Johnson Flint's song, which we'll use as just a reference for a poem of what God has promised to us. And it's old and it's a classic. I know that the language is not what we always use today with the hats and the these and the those, that kind of thing. But the message is really good. And um, before we open in prayer, I want to just draw your attention to that and just read it. Um, because it's really timeless. Um, a lot of people my age probably have this somewhere in their homes or on a bookmark in their Bibles, that type of thing. It says, what God hath promised. And then he says, God has not promised skies always blue. Think about this. Flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. <clears throat> he has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He has not told us we shall not bear many a burden or many a care. God has not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel needing no guide. Never a mountain, rocky and steep. Never a river, turbid and deep. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. True words and things we need to remember. <clears throat> and I was just drawn to this as I was preparing these last two lessons because Israel came out of Egypt not knowing what to expect, but certainly not expecting what they hit. <laughs> the first thing they hit was a wall of water that they couldn't get across. And then from there on, once they were on the other side of the river, they hit one trial after another. And that's what we're going to be talking about these next two weeks to see why God builds into our lives times of testing and trial. So we think that becoming Christians makes everything easy. And no hills and no valleys. But we find out there's lots of valleys, lots of steep hills, and sometimes we don't know what to do. And the point of these next two lessons is to show us that God really is always there, even leading us in the trials and leading us to the trials. So we have to know that God is there the whole time. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll <clears throat> get on to the chapters in Exodus. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you that we can gather here together. We thank you for each part of these lessons that calls us to look at who you are instead of look at, looking at the things that are around us. We thank you, Lord. And sometimes it's hard to thank you for the trials that come into our lives. But Lord, through what we can read in scripture, we know that these are things that you put into our lives and allow us to go through so that we can know you better. And that was your purpose in these um, lives of the Israelites. 
So we thank you, Lord, for what you want to teach us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so today we're going to start in Exodus 15 um, and then go on through, through 16. And I want you to look at your maps. I think that you'll find them helpful. Um, no one is sure just exactly where the, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. So you know that. <laughs> um, every commentary will have something a little different. But the Bible lists some cities that the Israelites certainly had to go through. And um, we have Ramses and Python and Sakuth. And we know that when they went to Ramses, that was actually one of the cities that they helped to build. It's part of the pyramids. Uh, when people go through the pyramids in Egypt, the pyramids of Ramses are, are there to view some of them. And so um, we know that they went over and crossed over the Red Sea at whatever point. Now they have it on this map way up here and they call this Pi Heoroth and that's, that's one of the references in scripture. But again, they're not positive where these cities were for years after they didn't necessarily find them until the archeologists found some hints of them. But at any rate, we know that they crossed over into this section right here. And so if we look at the map, today we're going to be talking about Merah. So that's number four on your map, the waters of Merah. And then we'll go down from there to Elam. And then next week we'll be going on into um, all the way down to Rephidim and to Mount Sinai. So um, when you see those, you can kind of refer back to your, to your maps. I want to start reading today in Deuteronomy. Our lesson's going to be <clears throat> our lesson's going to be in Exodus 15 and 16. But um, I want to start with this passage in Deuteronomy because it gives us some history. And I just want to read um, 15:22 out loud to you. It's then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur for three days. They traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy 8. Because we're going to be entering on a part of their journey where God has some very specific lessons for the people to learn. Um, mainly to trust him even when things don't go right. Kind of like the song that we just read. Um, I want to start reading in, in Deuteronomy 8.2. And again, this is Moses writing. This is um, another of the books that he wrote. Remember, starting in verse 2, and this is long after the, the Israelites had come out of Egypt. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. And this is after they've already been out of Egypt and, and actually are living in the wilderness. So he's calling them back to a time of remembering how God behaved toward them. So remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. We're at the beginning of that journey, all right? To humble you 
and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. So if you want to know why God led them this way, what do we find out just in those verses I just read? What did he want them to know? What did he want have in store for them? He led them there to humble them and to test them to see what was in their heart. Did they trust him or not? And we'll find out that they didn't at first. Didn't for many, many years. So God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You familiar with that verse? <laughs> from the New Testament, Jesus uses it. Okay, we're going to talk about that in today's lesson. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during these 40 years. And know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you as one of his children. Discipline is hard. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And then over to um, verse 11. Let me read down from there. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you on this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. <clears throat> so I'm going to go down from there and continue to read because we find out that Israel <clears throat> took a long time to really get to the point where they looked at God for all of their provision. Um, You'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and its scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known. And that's repeated in scripture many times. Manna was something no one ever had known before. Um, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and confirms his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is today. And so God reminds them of what he has done, and Moses tells them, don't forget this. And so we're, we're going to go back now to look at what we can learn from um, their behaviors that can help us to maybe remember God in our own lives better than they did. So um, let's go over to Exodus 15. <clears throat> and this is what I kind of call the episode of the lack of water at, at, at Merah. Okay, one of the places they came to Merah in verse 23, and they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Merah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. And I want to just stop there um, at this point. So again, we come to 
um, their journeys and their first response to whatever happens to them is what? Grumble. They grumble. Sounds like us. They grumbled when they came to the Red Sea. They cried out. They don't ever at this point look up to God. They just can't figure things out. And so they cry out and grumble against Moses primarily. And then through him, obviously, they're grumbling against God. So then we read <clears throat> that God at, um, at Merah made a decree and a law for them. And in verse 26, it says, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in your eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And from there, they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So let's just take a look at these verses um, a little bit. So God meets the immediate need for water by doing what for the people at Merah? What does he do? He makes it sweet. By having Moses find a branch or, or um, some wood that, that he knew, um, that God knew um, would work, and he showed Moses a piece of wood which he could throw in the water, and through God, the water became sweet. Wasn't anything magic in that wood. It was just through the power of God alone and Moses' obedience to put that stick in the water. Now, if he'd have tried that down the road at the next place, it probably wouldn't have worked. Moses was never to do any of these things without the commandment of God. So if he got to the next pool of water to see if it was sweet or not, it wasn't up to him to throw something into that water. This was all of God, step by step, counting on Moses' obedience to God. Moses turned to God, and God sweetened the water by showing Moses that um, piece of wood. Now, in verses 25 and 26, we come to something that is new for the Israelites. And he um, issues a ruling and an, and an instruction designed to test them. So what does he require of them? What is it that he tells them that they must do? I'm giving you a new rule. And the rule is? Pay attention to all his commands. What? Pay attention to all his commands. Pay attention. Listen to him. And obey him. Now, they had lived as slaves in Egypt for years. They had masters, cruel masters that they had to obey. They were driven by slave masters. Obedience should have been something they understood, but that obedience was driven obedience under a curse of death, really, if they did not obey. And here God says, if you will listen to me and obey me, I will prevent you from getting the diseases that came upon the Egyptians. This is something new for the Israelites. Not that they didn't have to obey masters before, but this is a whole new relationship. God is not a slave driver. God is the God of grace and love. Now, they didn't recognize this at first. They were only used to what they knew, only used to being driven into obedience by slave masters. Yes, they had a choice with God. 
Absolutely. And that's a really critical part of this. They were all of a sudden put in a situation where they had to take personal responsibility for obedience. And that is the point of all of the tests that God gives to them as we go along. He was not the slave master. He did not say, if you don't do this, you'll be gone. It'll just be over. But he comes to them as a gracious God and a gracious master, a loving God, who's delivered them from their slavery, but brought them into a relationship that requires an obligation to him. Now, they had an obligation to their slave masters, but it wasn't out of their own will. They didn't have much choice. But God says, if you will obey me, then, then you'll be blessed by me. So what they have to learn, yes, Joan? That old song comes to mind, trust and obey. Mm -hmm. That's what's going through my head. Trust and obey. Now, they didn't get either part very well at the beginning here. <laughs> they neither trusted God nor wanted to obey him. They didn't see any reason for it. But God works all of this. So on, um, I have that question about the ruling and instruction, what God is trying to teach them on the next page, on page two on your outline, if you're following that. But what God wanted them to know was that he was a loving father and that he was there to care for them. This was not a slave master and slave relationship. This was a relationship built on personal responsibility. I will obey you, Lord. Now, after that experience at Merah, where the water was sweetened and they were um, given good water to drink and some instructions from God, God led them on to Elam, which was a short ways away. <clears throat> and we have a totally different experience. There were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. There was places to rest, places to drink water. <clears throat> and they camped there near the water. So <clears throat> what does this situation of going from the, the trials of Merah, where there wasn't water to drink and the desert was horrendous to them, to this oasis in the desert, what does this teach you about God and even about our own lives? For believers, for people who are choosing to follow God, what do we find? If we trust him when we can't see, all right, if we trust him, and as we trust him, you'll find out that we go from highs to fellowship with God, where he's still teaching us things, but on then into places of blessing. Now, when God leads us, he doesn't always lead us into places of blessing, and that is what he wanted them to know. And that's kind of how our Christian lives are. We have times when we're in great fellowship with God, and he blesses us. And we're at a place like Elam. It's a, it's a sanctuary and a, a place of refreshment and a place of rest. And then we'll go on from there and all of a sudden, bam, we hit a roadblock again. And that's what happens in their journey. Their journey is very much like life. All right? We can go from Sunday morning of blessing and praising God, and by 6 o'clock at night, things happen. And our world's turned upside down. God hasn't changed, but he's got plans for us. 
So that's what's happening here. They're, they're, he's taking these babies who've just come out of Egypt and showing them how he wants them to know him as one who blesses them, but also as one who requires obedience. So um, the next episode takes place <clears throat> starting in chapter 16 because they go on from Merah to Elam and go on next into um, the desert of Sin, which isn't a desert of sin, but it's a, a part of the Sinai desert, basically. So chapter 16, verse 1. <clears throat> We're going to be spending the rest of the lesson really on um, this chapter. So the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> which is between Elam and Sinai. So just a, a kind of a desert within a desert. On the 15th day of the second month, so they've only been out two and a half months from Egypt. Um, in the desert, the whole community grumbled. Didn't take them long, did it? Kind of continues all of the time. Now I want you to think about this, two million people grumbling, grumbling, grumbling against Moses. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, Oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. It would have been better if we had died in the Lord, by the Lord's hand. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Is that the truth? I think their memory is a little clouded. <laughs> they were slaves. They didn't sit too much around pots of food and pots of meat. So their memory of Egypt is just a little exaggerated. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Moses, you're no good, bad leader. You've led us into this place of starvation. And then the Lord said to Moses, look at this. I want you to see this very carefully as you do this. <clears throat> The Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven. A little bit of bread? Rain down. Now that's not Sarah Lee, and it's not um, Hawaiian loaves <laughs> and buns. But God has something special in, in, in mind for these people, which is designed also to teach us. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven. God doesn't call it manna. He calls it bread. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, here we go again, I will test them to see what? Whether they follow my instructions or not. And then he goes on <clears throat> to give his instructions. But here's, here's the thing. There's nothing to eat. The Lord now comes to Moses. The people grumble against Moses, and I don't have a record here of Moses going to the Lord and praying for bread and food to help these people, but the Lord comes to Moses, and he says, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. 
On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses goes on and um, gives the instructions. But I want you to look at um, the questions. I have um, number two under that portion of scripture. <clears throat> Exodus 16, 4 and 5. In these verses, God gives a promise and a test again for the Israelites. What's the promise? I will rain down bread from heaven. And the test, <clears throat> what is the test and why might the test be especially difficult for them? He gives it to them in um, just in his instructions as he talks to Moses, um, verses 4 through 6. Why might that be difficult? They might not trust him for the seventh day. Yeah, they might not trust God enough to listen. I think they probably had some food insecurity. They had definite food insecurity. They didn't know if this was something good or not good. And so the test is, will you follow those instructions that I give? Now, after we read through some of the instructions, we already know um, that... that um, on the sixth day, they're here. I'll test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Let me just read down. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against them. What a strange time. For the Lord to show his glory. He doesn't wait for the Israelites to be standing with uplifted hands and praising him to show his glory. Ever think about that? He comes to them and shows them his glory while they're grumbling about him. And grumbling that there's not enough food. And grumbling in general. Look at it. In the evening you will know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that we should you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Wow, what a gracious God. To give them bread to eat, while they are what? Grumbling. What does this tell you about God and you? No matter how we are, his love still is steady. These people are grumbling against him. They're grumbling against Moses. We wish you would have left us in Egypt. And he chooses instead to bless them. He's working with babies. And he wants them to know he loves them. So, Moses says again in verse 8, You will know it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, Moses and Aaron, but against the Lord. And then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. 
And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And then it goes on. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 14. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you. This is what the Lord has commanded. And here are the, the rules. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer, which I looked up, and it's about six pints for each person you have in your tent. So if you got that in the morning, you would have about six cups worth of manna. <clears throat> so the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. <clears throat> Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. And on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported that to Moses. So God gave very specific rules for how this was to be, <clears throat> how this was to be gathered. And again, what is his purpose in giving such specific rules? Personal responsibility. <clears throat> you are to take that bread. Now, in the families, it was the parents, I'm sure, that gathered for the children. But the responsibility was on them. God's part was to rain down manna from heaven. However it was and however it appeared, um, the Bible gives us just little hints that it was small outside of their tent door. They had to gather it in the morning because if they waited, the sun was too warm and it melted. So what he's trying to teach them is that the tests that I give are for you. You have the choice again. Now, why would it maybe be especially difficult, and we see some of this in here, for them to adhere to these rules? You go out and you only take this much. And on the weekend, on, on Friday night, you have to take for the next day because that's the Sabbath. We're going to learn that day is set apart for the Lord. Why would this be so hard? Again, we go back to what Shalane said, food insecurity. The fear that there's not going to be enough. But God gives them these tests in order that they might learn that he is the faithful God. And I want you to remember this about 
the significance of the appearances of the Lord. Now, this is the glory of the Lord that appears to these grumbling people in a desert. Think about this. When they're at their worst, when they're at their worst, God appears to them in his glory. Now, what does that mean when I use that term? If God appears in his glory to these grumbling people, we know that he was hidden in the cloud and in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. What do you think he was trying to say to them especially? Even when you're at your very worst, I'm here. And the blessings don't stop because you're bad. You think they do. And he doesn't want us to go on and sin against him. But these are people who are learning to walk with him. People who just came out of slavery don't know this God. And he carefully, carefully loves them. And requires that they look to him for food, for water, for all that they need. And he graciously, in the face of their rotten behavior, gives it to them. I often think when I'm bad, God's not going to be nice to me. <laughs> Why should he be? But you know what? Thank goodness God's not like me. Because I'm thinking, oh, I haven't obeyed the Lord. I surely deserve less than his grace. But his grace always finds a place for us. I think about this because I cannot imagine in their condition of anger against Moses and grumbling and not being thankful for what God has done. And here this pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire appears and the Lord speaks and says, I'm going to take care of you guys. I cannot even imagine how they must have felt. But we find out that they're not perfect people <laughs> because when we go on, on um, verse 23, they keep on going through this, and, and this is where Moses lays out some of the rules for the Sabbath. And he says to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest. Well, I'm still going to be hungry on my day of rest. So <clears throat> it's a day, a holy Sabbath unto the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. And so these little Israelite women had to get out and get their cookie pans ready and all of this. You ever think about them cooking this bread in the desert? Boil it. Bake it, fix it up so your family will like it. I mean, think about that. They didn't just eat these little pieces off the ground. He said, bake what you want to bake. Boil what you want to boil. Did you ever think about that? I'm going to have a loaf of bread made out of manna from heaven. <laughs> I, I actually woke up in the night and wondered if God ever had them make anything out of it. And I wondered what you could make out of manna. So when I was rereading it this morning, I'm going, oh, he says, bake what you want to bake. Boil what you want to boil. I think today I'm going to have boiled manna. 
We're going to mix it up a bit. <laughs> yeah. And then I thought about all the fine Maybe Jewish. Maybe so we can have some tomorrow yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah. And, and can't do that. <laughs> but I thought about all the fine breads that we hear about um, Jewish bakeries producing. And I'm going, I wonder if they learned that on the trail. <laughs> but anyway, so bake what you want to bake. <clears throat> boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they save it in, until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. But then, <clears throat> verse 27, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, and Moses, uh, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and that is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. And again, teaching them personal responsibility. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Some of them did. And God goes on and um, <clears throat> blesses them throughout all of their journey and into the, into the um, wilderness where they lived for 40 years. And the manna did not stop until they crossed the Jordan River into Canaan. All of that time, there was manna. Now, I want to um, just go through this um, quickly like this and, so that we get down and we can talk about the relationship of the manna to the Word of God and to the Lord Jesus. Okay? So in Matthew 4, 4, um, down at the bottom of your page, it says, Just as God gave manna from heaven to sustain his people in the wilderness, so we find that the word of God has been given to sustain us in our daily lives. That manna is another Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. And we know that because Jesus himself refers to, to manna, actually many, many times. But we find that manna is a picture in the New Testament of the Word of God and of Jesus Christ himself, the living Word. Now, when you think of um, manna being a picture of the Word of God, in what ways does manna picture God's word. He, Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, a man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he connects the two. So how is the word of God related to manna? How does manna picture that? You eat it daily. You eat it daily. Also, go ahead. Sustains like a spiritual, your spiritual life, like bread would nourish your it's physical. Like, the original soul food. <laughs> Feeds your soul. <laughs> it is food for the soul. Truly it is. It must be gathered every day. What else? Individual responsibility. Personal responsibility. Gather enough for each day. Go out in the morning. Now there are... Um, you know, when you look at the rules for eating manna, we know that we're pretty lax on how we treat the word of God. But Jesus himself did not treat it lightly at all. He's an example of it. He's the, the living word. But he says when Satan tempts him, man shall not live by bread alone, 
it won't sustain us eternally. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the word of God is the thing that sustains us, that gives us life, and feeds our souls spiritually. Now, I want to go on and talk about how the Lord Jesus Christ himself talks about manna from heaven. I want you to turn over to John chapter 16. Or John, I think it's chapter 6. We didn't get that one, did we? <laughs> Michelle and I usually try to catch my errors. <laughs> John chapter 6. see, for the Israelites, manna was the essence of life. In other words, they could not live unless they gathered it. You don't eat manna in the morning. You don't pick, pick it up in the morning and gather it and use it. Over time, you're not going to live at all. So it was for them the very essence of life. So when we get to John chapter 6, Jesus always finds himself in discussion with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so in verse 30, I want to start reading there. They asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now this was after he had fed the 5,000 and broken the bread and given it to them so that they could eat. Our fathers, forefathers, ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they, they believed that, that God had given them manna from heaven to eat. So what are you going to do that's, that's that good? That's really what they're asking him. What are you going to do that's as good as giving us manna from heaven? He just fed them bread in the wilderness. He just fed them. <laughs> he just fed 5,000 people by breaking. Yeah, not good enough. So what are you going to do? And so Jesus says to them in verse 32, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Manna. Picture of true bread from heaven. It is my Father that gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So in John 6, 32 and 33, um, for his listeners, how did you fill that out? What do we need to understand about Jesus? He is the true bread. Manna was the bread that pictured what was coming later. But I am here right in front of you, and I am the fulfillment of the sign and the fulfillment of the picture that God gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament. I'm the true bread. And what he's saying is, I am the one that the Father was speaking of. I am the one that the Father was showing and illustrating. I am the means of life. So he goes on with them. 
I mean, these people are not nice to him. <laughs> not, not any time. And so they said, Sir, from now on, give us this bread. Well, I'm the true bread that came down from heaven, but sir, give us this bread. And so um, in, verses, in verse 35, Jesus said, and I want you to note the words he starts with, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm standing here in front of you. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Now, when Jesus, when God appeared to Moses in the desert, and Moses did not know who he was, and he said, what is your name? What am I supposed to tell them who sent me? What did Moses, what did God tell Moses? What was his name? I am. I am. All right. Now, these Jewish scholars that Jesus was talking to would have known that story would have known that that was the name that God gave to Moses when he went into Pharaoh. Who am I to say you are? Moses, you are to say, tell them I am has sent me to you. So Jesus himself takes that name and he says to them, I am the, the present tense, eternal present tense, always. I am here. I am eternal. Present tense. I am presently here with you. I am the bread of life. I am. I am God. I am the Father. I am the one who appeared to Moses. I am the bread of life. And he says, he who comes to me will never go hungry he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But he goes on, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And he goes on and he tells them, he who believes in me, will have everlasting life. I am the bread of life, the eternal present. Let's go down to verses 47, 48. <clears throat> Again, he's talking to these skeptics. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. For I am the bread of life. He repeats it. He who believes, and again, what is he putting on the people that he's talking to? I'm the bread of life. If you believe, you have everlasting life. What's he talking about? Same thing we've been going over. Personal responsibility. I'm here. I am the eternal I am. I have been since eternity. And I am here now in the present. I am is the present tense. And it is the eternal present who is standing right in front of them. I am the bread of life. He who believes in me has everlasting life. Personal responsibility. The one who believes will live. 
just like in the manna, the one who takes the manna will eat and will live. Okay, so then he goes down. Let's go down to, um, let me read from 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I'm standing here telling you this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. For this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. What is he telling these people about himself? When he talks about um, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What is he talking about? Appropriating it taking it for themselves. So what do we have to do to receive the blessings that Jesus promises here to the people that he's talking to? We have to receive and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Take it, appropriate it for ourselves. Eat it. Assimilate it into our lives. Allow it to work in us. Yes, Anne. What is the full cup here? Like meaning the body of Christ which is for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Mm -hmm. This is the body which I have shed for you when you do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood that I have shed for you. When you drink of it, do it in remembrance of what I have done for you. It's a personal responsibility to appropriate that bread of life for yourself. That's what Jesus is talking about. The program was exactly the same in the desert. Every day, you must go out and appropriate that bread if you want to live. But here we have the living bread. And Jesus says, you have to believe in me. Take me, eat of what I am giving to you, appropriate it, and you will live. Questions before Michelle comes? Yes. I just, I know I have questions, so like there's an observation that often when I'm reading this, like from the Israelites, I think these really foolish people, what is it going to take for you to get it? And then I think if a story was written about us, <laughs> what would that story look like? And I think of the toilet paper hoard in the 2020, what would that chapter be? <laughs> you know, to learn of God's faithfulness and, and what is he trying to teach us through hard times. And we have the benefit of seeing what they went through and what God taught them. Mm -hmm. And yet we still don't get it. We don't get it. I mean, I'm worried about filling my gas tank. <laughs> and and I think about all of the people that are going to be worried about that. That's a tough thing. Yes. Uh, just an observation. We were talking about how the Israelites grumbled. Mm -hmm. And the Lord showed his glory when they grumbled. Here Jesus is the glory of God. And what do we read in verse 41 and mm -hmm. 43? And even about the disciples in 61, they grumbled. Mm -hmm. It look, seems like it was a, a trait passed down. <laughs> <laughs> I, and we sometimes have it. <laughs> but I think that that's true. It's a part of human nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, Natural man, not the, the natural man, not the spiritual man, and um, difficult things to believe. I mean, what they're really 
God's really asking is, absolutely trust me. Take that which I offer you. Yes. At the top of my page, when I was looking at all of the different verses and words, I wrote, God tests, we grumble, he provides, and we are humble. Uh-huh. Good way. You're a poet and you don't know it. <laughs> God tests, we grumble, he provides, we are humble. Over and over and over and over again. <laughs> okay, so mine is the responsibility of how do we apply this. Um, when I was a young girl, my mom used to tell me that I was, they called me Motormouth Michelle. And then they'd also, she'd always be like, oh, Michelle, 20 questions. Here we go. She'd always talk about how many questions. Well, at the dinner table, my kids now have affectionately, and they didn't know that part about me, but apparently it comes through. (laughs) Um, They're telling me stories. And then the joke is, because they're hunters, they'll go, mom's going to with questions like towards everybody, you know, so when I look at this lesson and I listen to Marsha teach, I have a million questions. I have a million questions like, God, have you tested me? Am I currently in a test? Am I grumbling? Is my grumbling against you? Do I grumble against my leaders? What is my ability to follow instruction? What does that look like? Am I a good listener? Do I hear your voice? Do you, God, give me daily bread and what do I do with it? Do I collect it? How do I boil or bake it? What does it look like in my life to other people? Am I shining for you? Have I been responsible with this bread? God, are you concerned about my faith journey? Are you working within me to produce what you want and what you will? Do I rest? You've said you want rest for me. Do I rest? Do I speak of my daily bread so that my generations to come will know who their grandma was? I'm not a grandma. (laughs) Do I trust God? And how am I at being your disciple? All these things that the, the Israelites went through, you can take and you can think about it for your own life. This is a pretty easy lesson to think about and apply to your own life. The things we, that we need to think about. But what I end up with is thinking, how thankful I am, God, that you care about my journey. I was a baby Christian doing all kinds of wrong things, things I even talked with Louise this morning. But you cared, you brought in Tess, you brought in manna through Jesus and the victory I have in that, and also the people in my life that sustain me. You ladies here are a part of that. Marsh is part of it. The manna that God has brought to develop who we are today, and that's what he's trying to do with the Israelites. As Marsha said, they didn't know how to do this. Sometimes like us, right? They didn't know how to do this. But God has provided. And while, while Marsha was talking, a verse, a scripture came to me, so I want to turn to it. Um, it's Philippians 2. <coughs> Thank you. 
So Philippians 2, starting in verse 12, it says, Therefore, my dear friends, this is after he's talking about imitating Christ's humility. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, meaning taking it seriously, personal responsibility, accumulating that manna, that daily bread, and being serious about it as Jesus is working in your life. For it is God who wills in you, who works in you to will and act in according to his good purpose. Now let's look at 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Now I can only imagine that God gave me that because I'm not super good at memorizing when she was talking, but think about it. It's come from Old Testament to New Testament, and it's what we need to do. It's who we need to be. It's how God is working in our life. So God is teaching us how to be disciples. And if we look at the first question that I wrote there, it said, after the Israelites cross the Red Sea, God leads them into the wilderness where they experience difficulties. They react with grumbling and complaining, voicing regrets about leaving Egypt. So then I proposed the question, how would you have reacted to that situation? You know, and the best way we can think about how we would, re would have reacted is how do we react? to situations. Um, for the longest time now, they've been relying on miracles and looking at miracles. And then when it wasn't happening right away, it led them to grumble. So is there situations, especially as you in the past of, you know, there's maturing that takes place where you're not going to be as so quick to grumble. You're going to look at stuff. And do you ever feel like um, in the big things that happen, sometimes you're like, okay, I need to stop and I need to think about God. But sometimes in the little things of life that are challenging, you're quicker to like forget about that and forget about God, put him aside and just try to figure it out on your own and maybe grumble then. So sometimes it's that, you know, if you don't have these big problems happening, even the obedience and the little problems, I guess is what I'm getting at when you're thinking about grumbling and, 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 and stuff like that. So what do you guys think? Think about COVID. How has the grumbling been? <laughs> I mean, right now we even have social outlet to grumble on and, and it, it can be to the point where you need to like shut it off. But if we are called to be the stars and to shine, is it grumbling against God when, you know, it's just something to think about and, and maybe not necessarily something we can answer and figure out now, but definitely something to think about first, you know, before, oh, that's a Christian on Facebook freaking out, you know. <laughs> Angry. You see other people saying it, so then we're tempted to say, "We might have a good focus," but then so many other people are worried and complaining that you start to get into that situation too, where you start complaining rather than looking to God. Absolutely, or it just bogs you down so badly that you're just like overwhelmed with like almost a grief, like just a, a perpetual sadness when we're to have joy and think about what God is doing. <coughs> Um, my, my next thing with this lesson is funny. When Marsha brought out Deuteronomy 8 and I started doing her lesson, if you want to turn to me, if you want to turn again with me to Deuteronomy 8, I laughed. I said, Marsha, it's like Moses is teaching the application. You know, he's saying exactly what, they, what happened and what they were supposed to learn from it. 
So I had put on there, if you were um, able to have time this past week to look at chapter eight of Deuteronomy and reply or look at some of the big things that apply to your life. And um, I don't know, did anybody have a moment to do that? Okay, Shalene, go ahead. I put follow him, remember his faithfulness in the past, be humble when tested, this reveals my heart. God is bringing me into a good land, a land of abundance, and praise him for his faithfulness. That's right. Anybody else have a minute to look at? Um, just to remember that life and all that we have and all that we are come from God. And the tough times should cause us to rely on him more and not feel like we've been deserted. Mm-hmm. And also not to feel proud. Mm-hmm. I was going to say humility and the blessings that he tells us about his presence. Mm-hmm. Verse 17, it says, You may say to yourself, my power and strength from my hands has produced this wealth. But remember that the Lord your God, it is he who gives the ability to produce wealth. So like, even even in the blessings, remember that it's from you. Remember your beginnings, you know. Yeah. So as you scan through this, um, some of the things that I've highlighted in my Bible is in chapter one there, it's be careful to follow my command. We had said that about obedience. Um, in verse two, remember how the Lord your God led you. So remembering God. Down to verse six, observe the commands of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Again, trust and obey. Um, down to verse 11, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. It's like over and over what Moses is saying. This is what you're supposed to do with what you learned in the desert. You're supposed to remember the God, be careful to obey him, observe his commands, pass on what you've learned, all those things. It's complete application of what just happened to them or what was happening to them in the wilderness. So if we move on to um, the next question, it said, God is using the difficulty to teach them how to follow and obey and what it means to trust in him. When we are tested, it's hard, but we can be encouraged to know the character of God by reading this and saying he's doing this for a reason, which Marcia just all taught on. But we have a choice. We have that personal responsibility. Again, I love that word today in that how are we going to react? Are we going to be taking a humble stance of still needing and understanding that we are sinners and that we are needing to learn still? Or are we going to be prideful posture resistance? And to that I say, or wonder, are more trials just going to come if we can't learn? Sometimes I look at my life and I sometimes think, poof, I must be a slow learner. Like it is <laughs> coming down, you know? You think so. What are you going to do? There have been times, I'll go back a couple of years ago, when, because trials always come. Mm-hmm. They just do. And I remember throwing my hands up into the air and saying, what haven't I learned yet? (laughs) That's prideful resistance, right? Right. Instead of taking the humble stance. And and it was very interesting because I said that, and it was almost immediate. God said, that's kind of arrogant. (laughs) Because he knows, right? He knows what I haven't learned yet. And, And the other part about all of that is, our trials almost always involve other people. And and I've probably said this in this class before. Sometimes our job is to just stay faithful because really the trial is about somebody else and what they are needing to learn. And, and I'm a part of letting them see God in me 
And that, that's, that's really, that's my only job, mm-hmm. right? So not to say that there isn't still personal learning, but, but it's been really important to me to take it off of me. And it's about so much more. Well, just, just from looking at Exodus, I think we've talked about this twice, in that God is doing more than just one thing. He's answering prayer. He's showing the Egyptians. He's strengthening the Israelites. He's working it all out for every different reason. And if we can come to a point where, like, I trust you that you're doing this, rest in that. Rest in what God's character is shown through the Bible. So um, in Deuteronomy 8, I wanted to point out just um, here that there's two repeated sentences or two repeated scriptures. And, and I guess I've been learning along the way if something's repeated, let's look at it. So in verse 3 of the Deuteronomy 8 there, it says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then fed you with manna, which neither you or your forefathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Okay, so then you go down to the verse 16 there, and he says, again, he gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your forefathers had never known, to humble and to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. Okay, so he said it twice. It very much matters. The manna was very important. Jesus talked about it. So what can we say about it? And the question is, you know, um, what were the reasons that they had to go through that? It's very obvious. And in verse 3, what would you say if you had to list a couple reasons why verse 3 tells that they had to go through that? Humility. And dependence upon God. And showing that he is capable of trusting. He put the need out there, and then he fulfilled it like they couldn't even imagine. You know, that almost makes you want to say, I'm a little thankful for my trials. Show me your power so that, again, it can affect other people and change me and, and grow in this relationship, God and I, in the trust. So one other thing I think is kind of neat, um, where he teaches you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we complain because we don't have bread. But what God wants us to do is look to him because he wants us to feed on the word of God so that the the problem with the bread is just a daily problem with the bread. But the word of God goes on forever. So we look at the problem and God's saying, no, why don't you look and see what I have for you. What does the word of God have to say about what's going on? Mm-hmm. So again, it's that two sides. We look at the problem and instead of turning to God, we look at the problem. And he's saying, look mm-hmm. at the word of God. What does it say? What does it say about me? Yep. And, and, the, and to that point, the lesson just goes way beyond the satisfaction of the physical bread. It's just so much bigger than that, you know? So in verse um, 16, I, I particularly like what's said there, too. What do you see as the um, purpose that he's given there for that repeated, for the manna? I humble you, test you, and do good to you. Yep, and, and mine says, in the end, it might go well with you, mm-hmm. you know? So again, in that that posture of humility, you know what's going to go good with me, Lord, and I trust <clears throat> that you're good, you know? And so just... It's for your own benefit that this is happening, you know, and I'm just going to wow you with my love. That's what, I, that's what I'm getting from that. Okay, so the next question about Deuteronomy that I 
um, Bethany had touched on a little bit is Deuteronomy 8. It says, uh, also gives warnings for not only the hard times, but in times of prosperity. In times of prosperity, we need to look at all that we have and consider our character. And that's the prideful character. So I said, read verses 10 through 15 and write out what's necessary to keep our pride in check. So I'll, I'll read 10 through 15 here. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful, for you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you, are, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herd and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. So what is necessary from those verses that we can apply today in times of prosperity? What do we need to do? What was the first thing? Praise God. Be thankful. What was the second thing? Yeah, beware of not to forget. And then the last one. Yep, continue to follow in obedience. And then that last verse, 18, it says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And that's another thing to help us continue to walk and not be prideful, to remember that it is all from him where the blessings come. So when we think about the daily provisions Israelites received in the water, the man of the quail, we see a God who is with them, reaching beyond food and drink, but into what they needed spiritually, full dependence on God alone every day. I wanted you to think about the provisions, things that you need right now, and this is more personal, but how can it be pointing to a deeper dependence? How is God helping you learn, you know, with what, you need by your needs. How is he helping you learn to be dependent upon him? And I don't honestly really, I don't have an answer and I'm not looking for an answer. It's more just something to think about, to not just walk by your trials and, you know, woe is me, but to have that humble stance and say, God is good. He wants my end to be good. He's working out my salvation and I'm going to work alongside him. And we're going to grow in fellowship because we're going to shine like stars. So with that, I'm going to end in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the knowledge that we have of you that every day we can come to you. Get, help us to be women and say, give us today our daily bread. Help us to boil it and bake it and let it shine. And I pray that through the wilderness, we would have postures of humility and learning rather than postures of resistance. And as easy as that is to say, it's hard to do. So in your strength, Lord, I, I just ask that we would rest on that and grow in faith for generations to come and continue just to praise your name wholeheartedly and grow to be the women that you had planned us to be, Lord. And I ask you all these things and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.